At this point, every information portal is saturated with mindfulness content. But this show is a unique, unusual, curious take on mindfulness. Some of what you hear will be completely new to you. Let's dive in and take a look at the nature of the aware mind. I invite you to deepen your awareness so that you may be liberated and inspired. We are here with Sarah Vallely, mindfulness teacher, coach, and author. Sarah has been teaching meditation and mindfulness for the past two decades, training and certifying others to teach mindfulness. Sarah is the author of four books. Her latest book is titled Tame, Soothe, Dwell, The 55 Teachings of TSD Mindfulness. On today's podcast, we talk about fear and worry. We give examples of fear and worry. We discuss how you can redirect your mind from worry and how you can lean into fear. I am Jacob DeRosset. We are here with Sarah Valley. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Jacob. Thank you. We are going to tackle some of these questions. Are fear and worry the same? Are they different? Do they have a relationship? Can we decrease fear and worry with mindfulness? I would say yes. Fear and worry are different. Worry is more mental and less physical. And the mental part is often complex. Fear, on the other hand, has a physical component that's pretty pronounced. And the thinking part of the fear is less complex. Worry is thought to be more temporary. It's supposed to be. Fear is more long-lasting. Worry operates in the brain on a complex circuitry, and fear operates on a a less complex circuitry in the brain. Worry is considered to be an avoidant strategy away from fear. And fear causes us to do things to avoid the fear. So that's a significant difference. And worry is really avoidable. Worry can be optional. I know this is a hard one to swallow, but yes, worry is avoidable. Worry is optional. And fear, on the other hand, is unavoidable, is not so optional. At some point, we will experience a fear about something. It's just part of being a human being. Because of these differences, what we want to do is disengage from our worry and lean into our fears. Experts say that mindfulness can actually backfire if we use it to treat generalized anxiety disorder and worry when it's used to avoid the fear. An example would be you're worried that you might get fired. And so you use mindfulness to quiet those worry thoughts about getting fired, but you don't use mindfulness to be curious about your insecurities that are leading you to think that you're going to get fired. So when you say lean into fear, what exactly do you mean by that? There's a few different ways we can do that. One is noticing how the fear feels on a physical level. What does it feel like? Another is we can be curious about the fear and uncover some of the deeper parts of that. Let's break down the fear-worry cycle. There's three different components. One is the object of the fear, what you are afraid of. And it's best to get to the part of the object that's more neutral. And I'll talk about that in a minute. And then another component is the actual fear. And then the third component is our response to the fear. So that response could be our words, could be us talking about it, somebody talking about their, their worry or their fears. Your actions are a response, things that you might do to avoid situations, for example. And your thoughts are a response to the fear. And those thoughts are generally worry thoughts. So that's the relationship. Worry specifically are the thoughts that are in response to our fear. 
when I'm in a plane, there's not one second that goes by that I'm not aware that we are 36,000 feet in the air. It's like a constant and it just stays at the front of my mind and it, it, it all kinds of sensations course through my body. It, I'm just basically in fight or flight mode. I, I say that like me flying is like having a panic attack for however long the flight is essentially. It's just a, just a nervous, tense, sweaty, you know, trembling like situation that's that I logically understand is like illogical, but still, it's still a, a visceral reaction. It's still a feeling, even though I understand that it's the safest form of travel. You know, you're more likely to get struck by lightning two times in your life, I think, than to die in a plane crash. The weeks leading up to flying, knowing I have a flight coming up, is the worry. And I'm sure when I'm in the air, it's obviously worry too, but, but yeah, so go ahead and diagnose me, pick me apart. What's going on there? <laughs> yeah. It sounds really uncomfortable, maybe even a little painful with that, that anxiety. It is. <laughs> uh, let's break that down into its components. The object of the fear is being on an airplane and that on its own can be neutral, but the actual fear is the crashing part, the possible crashing, the death, the injury. Am, am I on the right track here? Oh Yeah. Then your response to the fear would be you talking about it, right? You, you probably mentioned this to your wife and other people. You're talking about your fear of flying and that might not make it worse. It might be annoying to some people. I don't know, but <laughs> I don't think it's going to really make it worse probably. And your actions that are a response to this fear might be avoiding making travel plans. My wife is pretty much against riding in the car because of the duration. And I I'll make the argument, but like, you know, if it's a 12 hour drive, even if you're at the airport for two hours each time, you're, you're still getting, getting there in half the time. So I lose the argument and ultimately have to fly, but yeah. Oh, I definitely bargain and try my best to turn it into a road trip. And cause I do love driving ironically, unsuccessfully. I, I try to bargain out of it every time. Yeah. So that avoiding travel in some ways might be helpful for you. Might ease your anxiety a bit, might make other aspects of your life a little bit more complicated. And then that third response is the thinking, thinking about the possible endings, scenarios, that's the part that makes it worse for sure, right? That's the worry. That worry is the thinking response to your fear, which makes things worse. So that's something that we can address. I have a fear of not fully recovering from my brain trauma. I got into a snowboarding accident a year ago and had a pretty severe concussion. I still deal with some of the symptoms. The object of my fear is my health in five years. It's own, neutral, right? Could be, I could be totally fine in five years. The fear is having the setbacks, having the dizziness, having the vision issues on a deeper level. If I become curious about that fear, it's a fear of discomfort, fear of uh, losing my independence. And then the response, my response to that fear is talking about it, which is generally fine. My action response is I switched from snowboarding to skiing. So that's probably good. And my thought response is the one that is not good, <laughs> is making it worse. I have thoughts of living the rest of my life in constant dizziness. I'm not constantly dizzy, so I don't need to have thoughts about being constantly dizzy. I have thoughts about going blind. I, my vision is, is fairly good. It's not 100% since before the accident, but it, but it's pretty good. So I don't really need to have these thoughts. That I will wake up and be blind. So that's the part the worry part. And that's the part of the, the cycle that, that can be a problem. 
my mother has a deep, deep fear of snakes. And uh, whenever she would see a snake, it would be a very, very huge reaction, screaming and running. I had a, a innocent understanding of reptiles, but then based on my mother's reaction, I have since developed a very intense visceral reaction. During the summertime, I hike a lot less than I would prefer because I don't want to have a, a run-in with a snake. I'm, I'm very aware when I'm walking because I'm afraid I'm going to see one. And then ultimately when I do see one, there's that intense pain of fear. And then I just go back wherever I was and then it's fine, you know, but that, that stress on the way is ultimately what it is. And, and I'll feel guilty like, oh, I should just overcome this. When you worry about that, does the thinking become relatively complex? Do you think about possible scenarios? Oh my goodness. That's a great way to identify the worry part is moving into some of that complex thinking, putting together some of those scenarios. There's a metaphor that I have for the components of the fear-worry cycle that's kind of gross, but I'm going to share it anyway. The metaphor is a, a skin wound. And so the actual skin wound is the object of the fear. In and of itself, could be fairly neutral. The scab covering the skin wound is the fear. The skin wound and the scab, if we just left it alone, could be fine. It, you know, it, it goes through the healing process, we move through it. But the worry part of this metaphor is us picking at the scab, making it worse. That prolongs the whole cycle, prolongs the fear, doesn't allow us to move through that cycle very easily. This reminds me the Buddhist idea of one taste. Everything is equal, essentially. The skin wound just is, but it's your thoughts about it that turns it into a positive or negative, right? A snake is no different from a bunny rabbit, as no different from a human is it's living, breathing, you know, circulatory system, all that. Actually, I don't know. Do reptiles have circulatory system? <laughs> I should be speaking about <laughs> well, blood. Yeah, I'm not really yeah. sure. Yeah, <laughs> anyways. <laughs> It's just cold, right? Yeah, I, I don't know what oh. I'm talking about. <laughs> Anyways, but it's it's our past experiences and and our experiences, and also like you know a, a certain naturalistic like one's a predator, one's a prey. So there's there's things that ping in your mind about this, but again, ultimately, it, it's really all just it just is as it is, right? Yeah, the skin moon is just it is what it is. We could say that about the scab too. The scab just is what it is. The fear just is what it is right? If we can just let those be and let it go through its natural process, which can be difficult, but it's possible this same approach can be used for trauma. So when I work with my clients and help them through heal through their trauma, the pain part is the part that's not so optional, but the shame and the anger part of that is more optional. And so it's leaning into the pain from that trauma and disengaging from the shame and the anger. And that's how we move through that, that healing cycle. Mindfulness can allow the fear and the pain to become more of a sensation, an uncomfortable sensation, but a sensation that comes and goes without us becoming really mentally tied up in it. So that's the big piece there is how mentally tied up are we in this fear? That's going to make it worse and prolong the experience. Jacob, we're going to take a 32-second break. Hey, join us for an online package. This is for couples and for those in between relationships. The title of this package is Solitude and Partnership. It's about creating stronger connection as well as becoming a stronger individual within the relationship. With this package, you'll participate in six online classes, private coaching, 
and an online mindfulness retreat. Cancel anytime if it doesn't feel like a good fit for you. Find out more at sarahvalley.com. And we're back. Disengaging from your worry thinking. First thing here is to identify that you're in the worry thinking, being aware of your different types of thought cycles, being able to differentiate a worry thought cycle and name it. I'm in worry thinking. I'm having this thought cycle right now in this moment. And that's really helpful because it allows us to accept that that's happening, that we're in that process. But at the same time, we're separating from it a bit. We're just naming it. It's there. It can be temporary. It might move on. With practice, we can detach from it in this way. And then using single point of focus to redirect your attention after that point. You notice the worry, you name it, kind of take this step back in your consciousness, and then you move your attention towards a sound in the environment, a physical sensation in your body, your breath, maybe looking out the window, looking at a tree, something to redirect. This is interesting. I was actually listening to a podcast earlier today and they were talking about the um, visual cortex and expanding your vision and opening up your vision and causes a, a triggering of your parasympathetic nervous system. Moving from a tunnel vision to a, a broad open spectrum literally you know, physically relaxes you. So that could be a useful tactic of connecting is to open your vision in that moment. We do that, right? We go into this tunnel vision, tunnel thinking. We just kind of get in this narrow place and that causes a lot of anxiety. It causes depression. Anytime we can find something that gets us out of fight or flight. That's great. Another suggestion for disengaging from your worry is committing to a sitting practice because what a sitting practice does on a neurological level is it pulls you out of the default mode network. The default mode network is a part of our brain that is activated when we are in worry and rumination. Our sitting practice actually shifts that moves us to a different part of our brain where we don't ruminate and we don't worry. So that's a a great strategy for disengaging from that worry. They conducted a study for people with generalized anxiety disorder, and specifically these people had a fear of failure. They participated in mindfulness training for eight weeks, and then they practiced mindfulness on their own. Total duration of the study was three months. And their fear of failure reduced by 24% after those three months. I see some percentages that are a little bit higher than that uh, within maybe two months, closer to 30% less fear. So leaning into the fear, we can notice what body sensations we're experiencing while we're experiencing the fear, while we're noticing the fear. Uh, That's a, a really great strategy. Notice how the fear is affecting your thoughts and your behaviors. So just simply saying, huh, that's interesting. I'm going to this fear and then I'm noticing I'm going into all these worry thoughts or I'm experiencing this fear and I'm noticing I'm grabbing a beer or grabbing a bag of potato chips. So just be noticed, huh, I'm noticing how I'm, what my behaviors are around that. And then the other really wonderful strategy for leaning into your fear is being curious about the fear, investigating I think it was Franklin Roosevelt who said, we have nothing to fear except fear itself. Do you remember that? So that's kind of like exactly the opposite to what the takeaway will hopefully be on this episode is that we really don't need to fear our fear. It's really saying there's only one thing to worry about and that's worrying itself. Yeah, that should probably be more accurate because I think ultimately you don't necessarily get to pick things that you're afraid of. 
that was during sure. the depression. People were in a lot of fear and they needed some support and motivation to become courageous. And so I think that that served its purpose for sure in that time, just really helping people, you know, feel, feel brave and feeling like, yeah, we're, we're going to make it through this. I love a fresh take on something though. You have nothing to fear except for fear ex- itself, unless you practice mindfulness. Yeah. <laughs> right. A little caveat. And you have nothing to fear. Right. Leaning into your fear, being curious about it. It's nice to ask these questions of yourself. It's nice if you're in a calm state in your fear experience, if that's possible. If not, try the questions anyway. Asking, is this fear about the unknown? Is this fear about failure? Is this fear about mental discomfort? Am I afraid of slipping into depression? Am I afraid of going into boredom? Or is this fear about emotional instability? Am I afraid of losing my temper? Am I afraid of feeling grief? Being curious about what what is that fear really about underneath Uh, and asking, what am I afraid will happen if any of these things above happen? What what am I afraid will happen if I do fail? What am I afraid will happen if I do become emotional? What will happen if that happens? These are great questions to lead us down this rabbit hole of of what this fear is really about. Honestly, it's more of having to deal with a snake. For some reason, this sounds ridiculous as I say it out loud. If a snake latched onto me and I had to grab it off of me, I think that is, I'm more afraid of having to deal with that. Not even the death as much as it is that experience, that moment when I have to do that. Funny enough, actually about flying, it's not the death as much as it is the, the moment of the realization of falling through the air. The idea of sudden death and, and death in general, I, for some reason, doesn't really irk me too bad. Probably part of the reason why I'm such a an avid researcher about health and longevity is I'm also terrified of decrepitude. So for me, it's those those terrifying moments of, of the imminence of like, okay, I'm probably going to die. That's what I think is so cool about these questions is it helps us get to know ourselves better. For me, when I delved in deeper about my fear about not recovering from my brain trauma, I was able to see that I had this fear of losing my independence, having to depend on other people to help me. And so that's interesting, like, huh, okay, so that's something that comes up for me. And, you know, looking at the spectrum of dependence and independence, and from a Buddhist perspective, it's really great to feel comfortable no matter where you are on that spectrum. I'm only comfortable if I'm on the independent end of that spectrum. So that's some life work for me is to feel more comfortable being in a more dependent scenario, perhaps. So it's just, just it's interesting. I do have a, a, a gigantic fear of my wife passing in some unfortunate tragic accident, obviously. And I feel like I probably worry about it a lot more than the average person. And uh, when she travels by herself, it's just a very intense experience for me. And and when I was a kid, I had, I lost a sister when I was really young and my mom had a a difficult time with that. Naturally, of course, it created this fear on my end of losing my mom of like people die. I'm now very young and very aware of that. I don't even want my mom to get out of my sight. It's the fact that I would have such a hard time coping with life without her. The idea of like having to cope with her not being around. I just feel like there's just absolutely, that would be too insane. There's just, it would be too much. I don't think that I could do it. 
And so that's actually the real deep seated fear is being alone and being having, having to handle my emotions by myself and not having the ability to have somebody there to help me during that. That was a very recent realization I had, and it was very heavy, but it was very helpful. One technique that can help with those really big fears, like just rooted, rooted in your being fears is to visualize how big the fear would be if it took up space. Would it be as big as the room? Would it be as big as your house? Or think about the power of that fear. The power of that fear could take up space. How much space would that fear take up? Someone might say that fear would take up the size of my house. Like it's that big. The technique is to visualize that and then actually surrender to it. Say to yourself or say to the fear, I surrender. I give up. You're bigger than I am. I've tried everything in my capacity to try to overcome you fear. I just can't. I just give up. The fight is over. That has an interesting effect on the psychological aspect of this, because it's that fighting against the fear that often is what is making it so big. And often when you use that technique, the fear kind of dissipates to some degree. That's really interesting. While you were speaking about that, I tried to do that a couple of times, and this is really fascinating. I would visualize like I was hovering above a house and I imagine the fear is this big black blob that was like a gelatin mold right next to this house. And then this is weird. Every time I would do that, the fear would expand out to like the size of a universe. You can use some common sense. If your fear really is as big as the universe, is there really anything you can do? <laughs> it's really in your best interest just to surrender to it. And, and, and that will take some of the power away. We can validate ourselves for having the fear. We might say it is understandable. I'm experiencing my fear. And that in itself can be super powerful because it's so much in the invalidation of having the fear that causes all these avoidant strategies that we're doing, causes the worry often. So just simply validating yourself for, for having the fear, using self-compassion, saying something like, my human body and brain are designed to feel fear. Fear kept my ancestors alive. I'm a human being having a human experience. Normalize it. Normalize the fear experience. Reminding yourself that this fear in no way makes you less loved. The fear in no way makes you less worthy of the love. The fear in no way separates you from others. And the fear in no way makes you a bad person. So using some self-compassion to continue to lean into that fear. Yeah, nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> the Aware Mind Podcast is a TSD mindfulness production. Please visit our website at tsdmind.org. That is T as in tame. S as in soothe and D as in dwell mind as in mindfulness.org. Check out our blog post for this episode with links to supplemental information, such as worksheets you can use to put into practice the mindfulness skills shared in this episode. Also, please sign up for our newsletter and receive mindfulness tips. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at aware underscore mind underscore podcast. <laughs>